up to? We are in the, we've just started a series, and I'm really just very excited about this whole series. We have, it's a nine-week series we kicked off last week, and it's a really it's a series about what does it mean to um, go on the formational journey that Jesus has for us. You know, if you grew up in the church like um, as I grew up in the church, essentially the map for discipleship or the map of formation has two big kind of main points uh, for it. And kind of like if this carpet was like the map, the first point would be the, the part of recognition of God or conversion or when you basically get to encounter um, God's presence and that becomes like a bit of a thing. You realize that that is real and you begin to allow that to kind of uh, have your, and you begin to have your life shaped around that. So that's the first stage. And essentially, you don't hear too much about how it all works until you kind of get to uh, this stage, which is when you die. And, you know, all going well, you go to heaven when you die. You know, of course, that's the case. But, you know, we don't, or Jesus returns, either, you know, either one. And you know, there's not too much else basically mapped out in the middle, yet most of our lived experience of discipleship, we feel like it takes these kind of, there's these ups and downs, there's this contour, there's a shape uh, to it. And that's because there really is a shape to it. And in fact, what we have in, given in the Bible, and in fact given down through the ages, um, is a bit of a map for discipleship, about what we can expect um, on this discipleship uh, journey. And I introduced that uh, last week, and it's called stage theory. And um, stage theory first came about in the second century by a guy called uh, Origen. He's the first writer that I know of who wrote about this. But also um, uh, Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century picked this up. In the 13th century, uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote about this. In the 16th century, this was picked up from um, Teresa of Avila. But it's the idea that, in fact, there's this kind of there's this map, or there's God, kind of God does different kinds of work at different stages within our life. And the point of this is to recognize which stage we're in so that we can anticipate the work that God has got for us or how Jesus is forming us at that stage. But also there's little things in which we all get stuck along the way. We can be at different stages at different times, but we often get stuck. And one part of the thing around stage theory is to think about how do we become unstuck in this process of Jesus forming us to be the kinds of people into which he can pour his presence and power so that we can be salt and light in the world. How are we going? Do you know what? They took me 40 minutes to say all that last week. Um, so that's basically all I've got to say. There's some books I really encourage you to basically have a look at or read um, at your leisure. Uh, these are four books that are really helpful on all of this. A Critical Journey is really some, a really good, some of the best, one of the best books around, I think, on stage theory. Um, uh, the Dark Night of the Soul is really great, especially in basically in the middle years through life. The Invitation to a Journey, that's a really good just all-round book of like, hey, what is the invitation that Jesus has for us at each of the stages? And Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser, he's, um, he's a fantastic Catholic writer on all of this. And particularly, this, he's really got some good stuff to say on the middle years of our life and what is the work that God does in those middle years. Uh, today, what I want to talk about is, if we, can we just flip back to the other slide, Julia? Thank you. Um, today, what I want to talk about is what's called the first half and the second half of life. And so really I want to unpack a bit further, really the first three stages and then the, and what happens at that stage, and then from stage four, five, and six 
uh, onwards, just a little bit more about what we can expect in these different stages and what kind of work God does in these different stages. First of all, I want to um, head into this section from John's Gospel. I'm going to read that, and then we're into it. Is that good? Intro done. Here we go. This is from uh, so this is this this is basically is the second to last paragraph in John's Gospel. Now, what is so interesting about John's Gospel is the way that it's written. It's kind of at the very last paragraphs basically talks about the way that Jesus did a whole lot of things that John doesn't include within the Gospel. So John, who is writing this Gospel, is consciously choosing particular things that Jesus did. And he's doing that because he thinks these particular things are super important. What I'm trying to say here is each word within John's gospel is carefully chosen. Each story is carefully chosen and placed into a certain place because John wants to get a certain message across, right? John is consciously doing that, and he basically signals that to us at the very last paragraph in the gospel. But this is what, um, here's a little section here. This is after Jesus' resurrection, and um, the disciples have been out fishing. And Jesus um, basically gathers the disciples onto the beach, and he cooks breakfast uh, for them. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He was referring to uh, the fish that he had caught. This was John, uh, sorry, this was Peter's vocation before he was a follower of Jesus. And so the question becomes at this point, you know, at this stage of your life, are you going to basically head back to fishing or are you going to continue to keep following me? That was a key point for Peter. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time. Now, we've got to remember here that this story, we're stepping into a much bigger story here. Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three You can see what's being reflected back here. This is the reinstating of Peter back into his role as an apostle after his three denials. And so on the third time, um, Jesus said to him, do you, um, said to him, Lord, oh, sorry, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and, go, and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Um, Notice in this little passage here that as Peter gets reinstated into his life as an apostle, a person who Jesus would, um, you know, really make the biggest dent into the Gentile world and the world out through um, in sending the gospel forward, Jesus divides Peter's life into two distinct stages, when he was younger and when he grows old. And this is the, and you'll notice that in the first stage, that everything is in the active voice. When you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt. 
and go wherever you wished. But then in the second stage, when you grow old, all the kind of the language is in the passive voice. You will stretch out your hands. Someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish uh, to go. And this passage really has been the paradigm that formed the seed of what later became to know as stage theory. And it's really the most basic way of thinking about the life of discipleship. There's a first half of discipleship when you are younger, and then there is a second half of discipleship uh, when you're older. And this has really come to be known as the first half of life and the second half of life. And that language was popularized by a psychologist Carl Jung, who talked about the, you know, the first and second half of life. And there's really nothing new about that. A lot of people have noticed this and recognized this. It goes back to even the time of Jesus, and in fact, even before um, this. Um, over the years, um, well, just recently, actually, this guy called um, David Brooks, he's not a Christ, wasn't a Christian when he wrote this. He's recently become a Christian. He's a social researcher, writes a lot for The, the New Yorker uh, currently. And he wrote um, a book, and reflected in the title, is this idea that there's a first mountain in life, and then there's a second mountain in life. Raul Heiser calls this um, essential discipleship, and that's the first stage of our discipleship. And that's about getting our life together, and then he talks about mature discipleship in the second half of life. And that's all about trying to give your life away or how or the struggle to give your life away. It doesn't really matter which language you want to roll with. I don't really care. But, you know, essentially it's talking about this one reality, about how our discipleship or how our formation basically takes on these two distinct stages. And that distinction or that kind of switch happens somewhere in midlife. And so what I want to do this morning is just to quickly unpack the first half of life discipleship and the second half of life discipleship and what that means for us today as people who are trying to practice the way of Jesus uh, in our city. Is that all good? Awesome. Okay. I have a quick sip of water and then we're into the first half. Mm. So as children, the vast majority of us grow up in really happy homes. Most children grow up happy and healthy. Most children, um, if, you, if they don't grow up in a context of abuse or in a context of poverty, most kids grow up feeling safe and secure, and um, secure particularly in their homes. You know, one of the most magic things that I've seen around is the change that can happen to a child that goes into appropriate foster care. And you know, this is the most, um, the radical, it's just, um, it's amazing, you know, when children grow up and they have the absence of these basic necessities of life, you know, a sense of actually belonging, a sense that someone loves them, a sense of, you know, there's actually they're going to be cared for, um, when children grow up or switch from a, a, a situation of lack and into that context, you are just, it's just amazing to see what happens and how the ship can turn. This is one of the most um, exciting frontiers, I think, in terms of urban mission uh, today. And, you know, for those who are, and I know that a number of people are involved in that here, and for those who do pour their life into the sake of others, pour their life into these children who can make this change, it's absolutely amazing, and I want to honor you uh, today. It's just, it's just amazing work, and it makes such a difference in the life of kids. So most kids grow up, and most of us grow up, um, pretty happy. And, you know, in a church environment where there's a burgeoning number of kind of kids groups that they can go along to, and in a, in kind of like a, an army 
of adults willing to love and disciple them and to be, you know, for them. You know, most children also grow up in a church environment where, um, you know, we're also where parents are happy to read to their kids' children's stories and to pray with them. Most children actually grow up in that context really open to God and kind of following God as a natural part of uh, their everyday life. Unfortunately, you know, the thing that knocks it out of kids is actually parents, believe it or not. Most kids grow up really open to, to God. Some people, you know, parents, you know, it, they, it's just, it's, in those early stages, it's really up to us to really feed into them. Then um, what happens in adolescence, you know, hormones kick in and basically um, it's a massive surge of hormones hits our body. And then we, we wake up to the reality of being sexual creatures. And not just in the terms of just, you know, sex and sex drive, those kinds of things, but also a drive to be creators and contributors uh, into this world. You know, of having new experiences, new music, a new sense of agency uh, begins to form in us. And the technical term for that is called differentiation. And that's the beginning of a journey from our home and from our parents to moving into forming or creating a home for uh, ourselves. So in the first half of life and in the first half of our formation, it's very much what is going on is the forming of the self, the forming of our identity and discovering, you know, who has God created you to be? Who has God created um, me to be? And there are a few key things that we need to get done in this first half of life. According to David Brooks, the kind of the great, kind of the, the wonder, the blessing and the curse of the stage of life is that you're kind of like a stem cell. You quite possibly could become anything. And so what's so important at this stage um, of our life, in this stage of our discipleship, is that we get a real vision of what life is all about. And we also get a vision of what your life is all about. Get a vision about who you are. What kind of person has God created uh, you to be? A sense of God's love for you. A sense of purpose in your own life. A sense of the, the goodness of who you are as a creature made in God's image. It's super helpful at this point to understand how has God gifted me? What are some of the strengths that I have in my terms of my personality? What are the weaknesses that I have? And how do I kind of move into that? And how, do I be, how am I different and similar from my parents and from my culture of origin? And part of that process um, is basically getting some clarity around some of the key commitments that you will make uh, in your life. And these key commitments basically form some of the scaffolding, scaffolding upon which your life uh, will grow. David Brooks, again, in his research, I'm pretty sympathetic to his view on this. He reckons there's basically these four key commitments. Um, the first, ha- first commitment is to a commitment to a vocation, a commitment to a spouse or a family or a group of friends. Secondly, uh, sorry, thirdly, a commitment to faith, a commitment to kind of not just receive the faith from your parents, but actually make that more personal and more your own and to step uh, into that. And fourthly is a commitment to a community. So during the first half of life, we, there's these, we either make one or nearly all of these commitments, and these commitments basically form the trajectory upon which uh, your life is built. So the first half of our life is pretty much the unfolding or the discovering of what kind of person you are. And really, in many ways, in terms of our formation, this is a much more of a focus on how we're being formed externally. 
there's a kind of there's an emphasis on that. Doesn't mean that no, no internal work's happening, but the emphasis is on the external. And by kind of like 20 or 30, most of us find ourselves within the contours of a life where we have a job with a certain level of responsibilities. We've kind of either um, I don't know, we have a relationships, a spouse, and we've kind of got a bit of a sense of what our life is um, all about. Then, by 40 or 50s, we undergo the midlife shift. Um, and we've all heard about the midlife crisis, and look, that's possibly true. I think it is felt stronger more in some people than in others. That depends on um, your personality. But if the first half of life was about containing our energies, the second half of life is about maintaining those energies. And look, that's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean that something's wrong. It's just meaning that the weight of the commitments we made in our first half of life, that's just kind of starting to kind of like bear, kind of actually be felt in our own life. So it's an actual sign of maturity. Also in midlife, um, as Thomas Merton quipped, um, usually if we've been climbing the ladder of success and doing well, every now and again we discover that we find the ladder is leaning against the wrong, the wrong wall. <laughs> so we've done well, we've climbed, we've got to the top, and then we've gone like, oh, uh, it was leaning against the wrong wall, and now what do I do? And some of us you know, feel like it's then we make a bit of a shift and do something else. Also, in terms of our formation, if the first half of our life was about, um, well, God was working externally mainly, there was some internal work, that's for sure, you know, the balance then begins to uh, shift. And in midlife, while there is, of course, a lot of external formation still happening, the balance of the work seems to be more focused uh, internally, where our participation feels more like actively yielding to the will of God and actively allowing the Spirit to form us uh, internally. And often, this inner work, this actively yielding to God, gets tested like Peter's gets tested, where you find yourself being led into a place where you don't want to go. I remember I was on a work trip. Uh, I remember the very day I turned 40. Um, I was on a work trip. I was in London, and um, I had this amazing Airbnb. Is Eleanor here, or is she out? Anyway, I was working my, um, my EA, Eleanor. She booked me a great Airbnb. It was in Earl's Court. It was amazing. Get yourself a good EA, by the way. It'll change your life. Um, the only problem was the name of the, um, I got the name of the Airbnb later on the invoice when I put that in to, you know, do the claim at the end of, it was called the Love Nest, which, no, there's not a vicar in the world wants that on the top of their, you know, receipts claim. I've been at the Love Nest for the last three weeks. So anyway, that was kind of exciting, uh, explaining that to the accounts department. But anyway, so I remember staying in this amazing Airbnb. It was in Earl's Court. If you, it's a lovely part of the city. It was, uh, it was in June. Um, so it kind of was getting, it was that week where it's not raining in England, which is amazing. Um, and I remember being for, just kind of, I don't know what happened. I turned 40 and I was, I was away from home and I stepped out onto the street. It was this beautiful sunny day and I was off to my first meeting. And I felt for the first time, oh my gosh, I think I don't care what other people think about me any longer. And it was actually great. 
It actually felt exactly like that. It was amazing. You know, I've, it's a funny thing as a kid, and even for most of my adult life, one of the things I hated most was being publicly embarrassed. What would happen was if I got embarrassed, I would turn bright red, and imagine that with no hair, like it would be like a light. Planes would start circling. You know, I'd, I'd turn bright red, and it was actually such a strong emotion. I'd actually virtually physically feel sick. So I used, to, I used to hate being embarrassed, but if something happened, maybe it's like frontal lobe decline at 40, I don't know, but you know, I stepped down onto the street that bright morning in Earl's Court, and it felt like you know, a nerve had been snipped in my mind. It was an absolutely wonderful experience. What was kind of confusing was, at the very same time, um, I felt that you know, um, there, was a, there was a big change coming in my life. I felt there was, a, there was a role I'd been doing in my work, I'd been investing my life into, it was a, bit of, it was a vocation. I'd spent hours in doing this, and it was uh, growing, it was actually really successful. But I could kind of feel, you know sometimes when you feel like there's a change in a season, it's still autumn, but you feel like spring's just around the corner? And I kind of had that sense in my own life that there was this change happening. And this thing that I had invested my life into, and had poured my life into, was beginning to slip through my fingers. And it was going, and I couldn't hold it. And, it was, and I just like couldn't believe it was happening. This was not what I had planned for my life at all. This was not the way I'd mapped it out. And it was slipping through my fingers, and there was nothing I could do about it. And man, I struggled. I even struggle today. It was such a struggle to yield to the Spirit, to yield where Jesus was uh, leading me. And I found myself, basically, turned 40, stepped down onto the street. It's like, you're in the first line of Dante's um, book, Inferno. I found, my, I, woke, uh, I found myself in midlife. I awoke and found myself in a dark wood. That's exactly how I felt. And it was really super disorientating. I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of it. And I know that for, you know, for many other people who have gone through something you know, similar, I only know a, few, you know a handful of people who've you know, walked through something similar in their walk with God. But without exception, on this side of all of that, did you know what they say? This is what made me. This was the very thing that made me. And, you know, they all say on the other side of that, they're more happy than they've ever been. They feel more free than they've ever been. They feel like a sense of boldness and creativity more than ever before. They feel like they've got no need to kind of manipulate circumstances or other people to feel safe. And it's a real sense of freedom and release. But it is a journey. It is a journey to yield to what God is doing in that season. It is really quite uh, difficult. One person um, comes to mind who's matured in this way, and every time I catch up with them, though, they have this amazing ability to lift the horizon line of what I thought was possible in my life. And that is because they did that season incredibly well. They were free now to be a person who actually loves other people and who gives their life away to another person. So, and I want to say, if you don't have a person like this in your life, go and find them. These people are absolute gold. And if you can't find them, just dedicate your life to become one of those people. It's one, you know, you're going to, you'll be an amazing gift for everyone else uh, in the world. So the first half of life and the second half of life. The second half builds on the first la- half. 
The first half is a little bit more linear. The second is a bit bit more non-linear, to put it mildly. The first half is more about an outward journey. The second half is a bit more of an inward journey. The first half of our life, we've got more black and white thinking. In the second half of life, we recognize um, that there's a lot of ambiguity and nuance needed for life. So what I want to do now is think about what does this mean for us? Uh, as followers of Jesus today. You know, the idea of stage theory is that we're given a map and a sense of how does this impact our life, not only so that we can understand which stage we're in, but also to understand the invitation that Jesus has for us, but also some of the temptations that we'll face that will make us stick and stop and get stuck in that stage. So I want to say a couple of words on each of those. You guys doing Okay. Doing real well. There's a lot of content, right? It's a lot of content. It's a lot of con- I thought you would handle it. I just thought I'd lay it on thick. Okay, so let's think about the, f- the temptations within the first half and uh, the second half. For those of us in the first half, for those of us in the first half of life, <laughs> for those who are in the first half of life, I was there before. Such a good time. But for those of us, for those in the first half of life, um, the temptation um, to be stuck in that in this section is mainly sexual, and what I mean by that is not just having sex, but rather the wider understanding of the term. You know, of actually moving out into the world, a lust for life, a lust for travel. You know, the nailing the first job, the amazing experiences that seem to be on offer in terms of food and drink and culture and nailing that first job. And kind of the idea is that, um, you know, all of this is actually good and appropriate, but we've got to realize that Western society basically has a conspiracy towards the inward journey. Western culture, as it's kind of framed today, it seems like we have a mass version of Tinkerbell or Peter Pan syndrome. Have you ever heard of this? You know, it's this idea of actually being like eternally, you know, Adolescent or early adolescent, um, you know, forever young, free of responsibility, a love interest but no commitment. You know, it's just all play and junk food. And look, that's absolutely fine when you're 12, but at 25 or at 35 or at 55, right, that's not, that's not a good look, is it? <laughs> that is actually not a good look. Cue the, you know, you've all heard of the verb adulting. It's, it's quite a recent verb. Oh, I'm really struggling with adulting. It's like, wow, how did that even become like a verb? Um, also, the struggle. So the struggle for the first half of life is to not waste um, this, these precious years in perpetual adolescence, which is all really exacerbated by Hollywood and Instagram and, you know, and late capitalism and the gig economy. And essentially, you know, why the Western, the Western secularism is so geared for the idea of keeping people youthful is there's so much money to be made. There is just so much money to be made of perpetually getting people into pursuing the, the goal of endless youth. It's just, that's a big deal. And for us, there's a, there's a real tendency to be caught up on that and uh, to not mature. However, the Jesus-shaped life the kind of life that God wants to have us form in us so he can pour in his Holy Spirit, that resurrection power into our life, is a life that's tilted towards maturity. So here Paul talks to the church in Corinth, and he says, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, rather be infants in evil, but in your thinking be adults. In addition, in in Ephesus, he says this, We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, 
by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I'm reminded of the 4th century um, monk, Gregory of Nyssa, who says, uh, sin happens when we fail to grow. And we live in a culture that perpetually wants to keep us at this stage, but Jesus is wanting us to grow and mature. So if that's the temptation of the first half, one of the key temptations we face in the second half, I'm in that group, in the language of Ronald Rulheiser, is the temptation to a second honeymoon. And in relational terms, you know, a honeymoon is um, absolutely great. Most of them go really well. Some of them are a disaster in the main. Uh, most go really well. And what a honeymoon in terms of a stage does is it kind of cements a commitment that's designed to be you know, lo- a long-standing, enduring uh, commitment. And that's not just um, about um, relationships, but also that's about um, you know, our work and our church and feeling and also in our faith as well. We all go through these honeymoon stages. But the key to this is that we need to transition from that stage of what's making me feel good, and I love this person, I love this situation, I love this job, and I love this city because of the way it makes me feel, to moving towards I'm moving towards this person out of a will for good because I love them. Does that make sense? So there is a... Now, what I'm not trying to say here is I'm not downgrading the place of feelings. Feelings are super important. Feelings, our feelings are the interface between our external world and our internal world. They're very, very important. God wants you to feel secure. God wants you to feel loved. God wants you to feel the importance of your life. But there's a difference between the reality and how we feel about a reality. Does that make sense? There's a, the reality is much, there's, there's a depth to this that's much more than the way that we feel about it. And if we just basically have feelings at the center of our world, that becomes kind of nearly idolatrous. Because who, if all your life is based around feelings, who's at the center of that world? You know, you are right? Yeah, you are at the very center of that world. So we need to make the shift from um, a, a, a life that is based around our feelings towards another person, but also around our feelings towards God as well. You know, so often in the initial stages, we follow Jesus because of, and follow God because of the way that God makes us feel. And that's right and good, right? That's absolutely important. But then there comes a stage where you actually have to shift from that and follow God because God is good. And we love God for who God is. And so that's moving from the pleasure principle to the principle of love. And so often the case is that we get tempted to go for a second honeymoon, be that spiritually or uh, relationally. Right, some steps for moving forward. Then I'm going to come into land. So some steps moving forward for the first half of life. These are basically um, pretty simple because it's really getting to ourselves to make some commitments. So often the case in our world, in the West, it's just geared to not make commitment. We live in a situation where our culture is geared for us to, um, you know, we live in a culture whereby there is actually a lot of divorce, there's a lot of um, a breakdown of relationships. We're in a culture of just kind of you can sign up at the very last second And commitment is often not seen as something that's healthy and good. Commitment is usually seen as an iron cage that crushes life, rather than the Christian point of view, which sees commitment as a scaffold upon which your life 
grows. And so what can, what can um, kind of can keep us stuck is we fail to make some commitments in these early stage of life that actually forms a trajectory, and we can spend a decade just scrolling through Instagram and living for brunch. I mean, avocado is great, but it's actually not going to shape your life as much as you hope it's going to. So you need to kind of make those commitments. As the Apostle Paul says, like in Romans 5, he says this, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. So if in the first half of life, we've got to make these commitments that form our character, in the second half of life, what can uh, stop us from moving forward is that we bail on those commitments. And that's um, for a number of different reasons. You know, we, we kind of don't make it through the honeymoon stage or we feel the itch to move on or, you know, we've got a set of uh, disappointments or a, a sense of unfulfillment. And instead of allowing those that feeling to drive us towards change or to drive us towards, like, how do I grow deeper? Often what we find ourselves is just bailing on uh, the commitments. There's a turning point phrase in the New Testament. Um, It's the Greek word pistis, and it's it's often translated into English as faith. You know, that experience that we have of, um, you know, of having faith in God or that sense John Wesley said about it when he became a Christian, you know, I felt my heart strangely warmed. You know, that's that experience of faith. But in fact, the Greek word means something much bigger and wider than that. It has a sense of endurance about it, a sense of um, allegiance over a long journey. And so this is what we need for our lives as we reach the second stage so we don't bail on our commitments. I don't know what you guys think about, you know, there's the 10,000 hours rule, you've all heard of that? you know, really popularized by Malcolm Gladwell. It's the idea that for mastery, there's kind of like 10,000 hours required. Um, What that indicates is, in fact, good things take time. And that is true in terms of our formation as well. It's going to take um, time. And so we've got to resist the urge to go for a second honeymoon. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, what we've got to go for is a long obedience in the same direction. So what does that mean? Yes, that means therapy. Yes, that means spiritual direction. Yes, that's meaning having great spiritual friends that are going to encourage you along in the long haul. It means yes to investing into the life of the church as well. Please don't bail on us. We need you more than ever. Look at all the kids we've got. Someone's got to look after them. Oh, we crushed. You know, so don't bail on uh, these things. <coughs> but it's also yes to allowing the Spirit of God to continue that work of forming us. It's a continual leaning into having our will shaped by uh, God's will. And that's long work. You know, next week, um, I want to talk a little bit more about how does God shape us, our identity and strengths and all that kind of stuff, which is going to be really exciting to talk about. Uh, Raywin Mortensen, we're going to be interviewing her. She's a strength coach. And it's really important for us to understand the way that God has shaped us and formed us so we can be in alignment with that. But as I land today, I just want, as we think about this first half and second half of life, I want to ask you the question, where are you on this? What commitments are you making? What commitments do you feel, you know, you're actually tempted to bail on? Where do you feel the Lord at work in your life? What is the Lord leading you into? Because Jesus is always calling us out of the shallows into the deep, always calling us into deeper water, always calling us to go deeper with him, always have, 
who always has new things for us and good things for us as well. So the question is, in your stage of life, it be that first half or second half, where do you see or where do you sense Jesus calling you? I want to um, end with this encouragement um, from the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And um, I really hope that as I read these words from the Bible, that you would sense the Spirit of God picking up these words and landing some of this in your own heart. So as I read this, be asking yourself the question, Spirit of God, where are you speaking to me uh, in these words today? So Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this. As we think about the first half and the second half of life, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in, fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Living then, as every one of you does, in pure grace, it's important that you not misinterpret yourself as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. Let's stand together.